Well, good morning. Hope you are all doing well. And if you are here with us today for the first time, I want to say welcome. Um, But as you read, we're coming to some of Jesus's most chipper words. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for the past few months. And we've been using the subtitle, Apprenticing the Way of Jesus, to describe what life in God's kingdom is like for his disciples. Well, for the sake of time, let's go ahead and take a trip back in time, shall we? Let's go all the way back to 2008. Not to the housing crisis, but to the election where America was about to elect a new president of the United States. I know, they say never talk politics in church, but here we are. <clears throat> you had two candidates, John McCain and Barack Obama. They were both senators at the time, and they had been on different sides of the political aisle. And they found themselves now campaigning against one another for the title of president of the United States of America, or our chief executive officer. Well, as the election drew near, it was either a dead heat or a runaway for your party's candidate, depending on what you read, who you talked to, who you listened to. But just a few weeks before election day, Senator McCain was campaigning up in Minnesota, and he found himself at a town hall event with several thousand supporters there cheering him on. He gave his talking points, he gave his speech, he fired up the crowd, fired up his base. And then he opened it up to Q&A. And when he got there, what he found and what he heard wasn't really question and answer, it was more declarative statements. He started fielding more comments than questions about his counterpart, Obama. It didn't take long for insults, slanderous statements, and lies to be hurled about the man who would become president. But a funny thing happened that day. John McCain didn't take the bait and go right in with them. Instead of agreeing with the thousands in attendance who hurled insults and slandered his his opponent, it would have been the easy thing to do. But McCain literally pulled the mic from one woman's hand and said no. He's a decent man, he's a decent family man, one that I just happen to have disagreements on a fundamental level on how this country should be run. He was booed by his own supporters, and many have said that this failure to go after his opponent is ultimately what cost him the presidency. In a moment when he would not criticize and condemn the man he was competing against, his very own supporters turned against him. Sound familiar? Well, this morning, we've made it to Matthew 7, where Jesus begins with some of the strongest words that he says anywhere in the Gospels. But I believe they're also some of his most misunderstood words. Judge not. These are perhaps modern culture's favorite words of Jesus. In fact, Dan Doriani comments that whereas years ago, John 3.16, which probably any one of us in here could quote, may have been the best known scripture of our culture, whether you were a Christ follower or not, today the best known passage may very well be Matthew 7.1. Judge not. The prevailing mindset of our age, Doriani says, is that no one has the right to judge anyone else. But to quote the famous 30 for 30 documentaries, what if I told you there was more to it than simply not making any sorts of judgments? What if Jesus, much like he's done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, 
was digging deeper than the surface level living and trying to get to the heart of the matter. But before we dive in this morning, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know all of the hearts in this room. You know the things that we've been celebrating and lamenting and weeping over this week. You know the things where um, we have just a really hard time believing and trusting you. Maybe even as we walk in this room, maybe even in this moment, myself included. Be gentle with us, but convict us where needed. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've walked through this sermon, we've seen that Jesus' message was often aimed at confronting and calling out broken and perverted notions of righteousness or religion during uh, his day. The religious leaders in the first century, they were perpetuating a religion that in many ways was far from the heart of God and the true intent of the law, which we've seen throughout this. Jesus, as a prophet and a teacher, confronts their hypocrisy and points to a better way of knowing God and living in the world. And namely, we've observed that Jesus is calling us as his disciples to a life wholly devoted unto God, to a life greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 5, 20 told us. I believe Mark preached on that. A righteousness that flows from a pure heart and a new spirit, and it impacts every aspect of our lives. And when we first read Jesus' words here in Matthew 7, it's easy to see why our culture has eaten that mantra up, right? Right? Some have made these two words about, uh, of Christ his primary point throughout his ministry. They've taken it to mean that we should never render a judgment upon anyone or pronounce another person's actions or beliefs as wrong. I think the basic premise for today is this. Anything goes, any belief, any lifestyle, any action, because Jesus said not to judge. But reading the rest of Jesus' words here, doesn't indicate that we're never to make any judgments. And we need the rest of scripture to provide context for us around what Jesus is saying in this moment. In a few weeks, we'll get to Matthew 7, 15 through 20, but those verses, Jesus instructs his disciples to distinguish, to distinguish, not extinguish, distinguish the good from the bad. He says that you will know people by their fruits. Good trees bear good fruits, bad trees bear bad fruits. In other words, you must make a judgment about, and in that case specifically, a teacher's authenticity by their actions and their lifestyles, if their walk and their talk line up together. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to make a discerning judgment, Jesus Jesus says. And this is not the only place in scripture where we see things like this. John 7, 24, Jesus instructs, uh, instructs, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 1 John 4, 1 through 3, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So he's telling them make judgments there, or John is uh, there. He's saying, be discerning. The Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 22, do not despise prophecies, he says, but test everything. 
Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So when Jesus says to his hearers, judge not, he must mean something different. And I think his point isn't that we should never make judgments, but we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of living with a judgmental spirit. He's cautioning us in this moment about the extent of our judgment. We are being warned about the danger, he says, of living with a critical eye and a critical heart. And that's the first point this morning, the danger of living with a critical eye. So in Matthew 7, 1, he says, judge not. And that word judge, it's important. The word in Greek here is krino, and in the context, it means to judge negatively. None of us have ever been judged negatively, have we? Jesus is warning against hasty condemnations of others, uh, Leon Morris says. I love that, hasty condemnations. Think about McCain in that, that town hall. It would have been very easy for him to jump at that. Jesus is cautioning us about living with a hypercritical heart. So what is a hypercritical heart? Well, the hypercritical heart puts all of its energy into criticizing, judging, and condemning others. This is the person that is spending their time looking for minor things to make a major case about. As one great theologian, Edward Andalina, my late father, put it, if everything is offensive, son, then nothing's offensive. I've heard it said in other ways. If everything's hurtful, then nothing's hurtful. If everything's trauma, nothing's trauma. This is the person going around looking for major battles to start over minor things. But Jesus is saying here in his kingdom, in God's kingdom, God's children don't walk around looking at others with judgmental glances. It's one thing to have an eye for detail. It's quite a different thing to have an eye that's looking to demean your brother or sister. Even as disciples of Jesus, you and I can fall prey to this, and we do it often. We look at others with a better than mindset. We have an attitude of condescension towards others that aren't maybe as advanced as we are in our journey with Jesus. But Jesus warns us that this goes against what God's kingdom is really like. This is not the good life that leads to true righteousness, true flourishing. This is a life of pride and self-righteousness and those don't walk in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's warning one of my former pastors, Andy Atkinson, was really helpful when I listened to his sermon on this. He says, he points this out. He says, the more that I've thought about this passage, the more I've realized that condescension grows in the soil of self-righteousness and pride. And pride is the fertilizer that makes a judgmental heart grow. And he's not the only pastor that points these things out. In his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, Bob Thune talks about this very thing as well. He says that we're really good at pointing out all of the ways that we're really good. We do this by looking to certain behaviors to give us a sense of superiority. And as we cling to these things to make us righteous, we simultaneously criticize others for not being righteous like us. For example, and he's going to go into some of these, so here we go. He said that some of us look to our hard work as a measure of righteousness. Thune would call this job righteousness. Job righteousness says, I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. 
Conversely, it says, I'm better than others who don't work as hard as I do or who don't have as good a job as I have or haven't climbed up the career ladder as quickly and as high as I have. Or maybe it's not your job that makes you feel superior. Maybe it's your family. Thune would call this family righteousness, which says, because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Any parents feeling the sting of that one? I had to chase my child down the the yard to try to not run in the street while I was on the phone with Ryan the other day. And then here came a car. But in that moment, all I could think of were all of the eyes looking at me for being a failure as a parent. Perhaps it's not family righteousness or job righteousness. Perhaps it's theological righteousness, which is I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Hmm. May we never be a church that says that. Or maybe it's intellectual or educational righteousness, which says, I'm better read, I'm more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Or maybe it's flexibility righteousness. When I was single, this was absolutely me. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. or one that may make us feel very Christian, mercy mercy righteousness, which says, I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Might even say, if you're not engaged in my cause on social media and posting about it or protesting about it, maybe you're not a Christian after all. Ooh, Thune stings. Maybe it's legalistic righteousness, which says, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, and Don't date folks who do. (laughs) Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Maybe it's financial righteousness. I manage money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending habits. Maybe as we saw earlier, it's political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. Conversely, it might say a Christian could never vote for that candidate. And the last one that he lists, though the list is surely much longer, tolerance righteousness. Probably the prevailing mindset of the age. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. Thune concludes, each of these sources of righteousness is also a way of judging and excluding others. We use them to elevate ourselves, and we condemn those who aren't as righteous as we are. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the habit, this was the pattern of our friends, the Pharisees. They had established their traditions as the standard for righteousness that made them better than others. And they walked around town looking down on people they felt didn't measure up to that standard. It is to this kind of self-righteousness that Jesus warns us, judge not. In fact, he taught a parable about this very thing, which Luke records for us in Luke 18. He says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with what? Contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off in the corner, not wanting to be seen, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, as I tell you, that man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you catch that? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It was all about the Pharisee and what he had done and not done that obviously gave him merit in God's eyes. And he made sure that he was expressing it to God. And brothers and sisters, we can fall into this trap as well. We highlight the ways we've served the kingdom, sacrificed our time, our talents, our treasure as a sort of measuring stick as to how we're doing. Even better if we can compare our good works to someone's lack of good works. Or even better for us, their wicked works. Jesus is cautioning us not to live with an eye that is constantly looking to find fault. But he doesn't stop there, he goes deeper. He's digging deeper to get to the heart even more. And that's the second point, the danger of a mercy-lacking vision. Notice what he says in verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, the problem of living with a critical and judgmental spirit is that we've lost sight of the fact that we're expecting God to deal very differently with us. We're presuming upon his kindness. We're presuming upon his kindness to us and not as our sins deserve. But did you catch what he said in verse two? With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That should stop us right in our tracks. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. What has Jesus said throughout this sermon? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He goes on. If anyone slaps slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone asks you to walk a mile, go with them too. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. And then when we got to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. But perhaps Jesus' most jarring statement throughout this sermon comes just a few verses later in chapter six, verses 14 and 15, when he says this. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their trespasses. Neither neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That should stop you dead in your tracks. 
Jesus also tells a parable about this as well. And when we went through the parable series last year, um, Mark already referenced it a few weeks ago. Um, But in Matthew 18, he tells the parable of an unmerciful servant. You can go back and watch it on YouTube. Some guy taught it. It was kind of meh. That tells you anything about who it was that taught it. But that parable essentially teaches the same principle. A man is forgiven an unthinkable debt by a king, yet when he came across someone who owed him a much lesser debt, he lacked mercy toward that man and he demanded payment of what was owed to him. And when the king hears of the man's harshness, he has him thrown into prison until he can pay that debt, which he never could. What is the message of that parable? Well, it's this. If you lack mercy toward others, it may indicate that you lack an appreciation of God's mercy to you. It could be revealing an unregenerate, unsaved heart. Mm. Careful, Gus. As it relates to judging others, a condemning or a critical spirit could ultimately be an indication of a failure to understand God's extraordinary grace in our lives. Jesus doesn't say it's simply living with a critical heart that's at issue. He's also calling out behavior that doesn't line up with the kingdom. He goes further. Notice verses three through five of chapter seven. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And that leads to the third point this morning, the danger of living with a hypocritical heart. So what about the hypocritical heart? Well, this is the heart that doesn't live by the same high standards it expects others to live by. It lives by the do as I say and not as I do mentality. But notice what Jesus says here. And I don't know if any of you have an NIV translation. I think the NIV is actually really helpful in this. The NIV says the other brother has a speck of sawdust in his eye, which I think is helpful visually because sawdust is really tiny, really minuscule. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm sure that it can do some significant damage if it gets in your eye. I've never had the pleasure of experiencing that. But I think what Jesus is saying is that the other brother's speck doesn't seem nearly as significant as the log in the one brother's eye. His point isn't that the other person's sin isn't important or non-existent. It's that we're focused on the sins of others when we are just as, if not more, guilty of our own sins. Guys, the gospel message is that we are all sinners that don't measure up to God's glory and his standard, and we are in desperate need of his mercy and salvation. How can I live with a judgmental attitude and heart if I myself am a sinner? I have no room to do it. What's the other thing that makes this sting? Well, I referenced my former pastor, Andy Ackeson. He puts it this way. There is no one who, in listening to Jesus here, is represented as the one with the speck in his eye. We're all the man with the plank protruding out. We need to own that. So how do we? How do we own that? Well, Jesus gives us, in that passage and elsewhere, a prescription, a remedy. And that leads to the fourth point. Jesus commends to us a humbled heart. Look at verse five again with me. 
You hypocrite. Not, not that part, but you know. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Jesus gives us a prescription. See, we have to do some surgery on ourselves before we go to do surgery on others. And believe me, you don't want me doing surgery on you because I'm not a doctor, not a surgeon. But notice, Jesus doesn't say that we shouldn't deal with the speck in our brother's eye. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. You still, have, you still got a speck, right? He doesn't say that. He says, Levi, he's got a speck in his eye, right? But you might have a, a log in your eye. You need to take care of that first. Then go to him and, hey, help him get that out. I see you back there, Levi. Don't worry, I saw you. He wants us to have a spirit of humility about things. He wants us to have a humbled heart. And I want to say this before I get to that description there. I chose that word very intentionally. A humbled heart has been acted upon. It has not done the acting on its own. It's passive. The humbled heart recognizes that its righteousness and its identity comes from being a child of God because of the finished work of Christ on the cross in its place, not because of anything it's done. The most life-giving reality of the gospel of Jesus is that there is not a single thing that I can do, that I could ever do to earn or merit that gospel on my own and that relationship on my own. And that should fill me with such gladness and joy and delight. But brothers and sisters, can I be honest with you for just a moment? That's one of the scariest things to me. Why? Because I live in America, and it feels so rewarding to say, I've earned this. I did it. I accomplished it. Look at me. And the gospel is not look at me. It's look at him. And again, think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says it was the humble man, the the tax collector, that went home justified rather than the religious seeming man, the Pharisee. Why? Because the Pharisee was exalting himself. And everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, like that tax collector, who understands his brokenness, his sinfulness, will be lifted up. When we understand our place in the kingdom of God, our lives will, by design and by intention, look different. Our attitudes, our affections, our worship, all of it will be focused on making much of Jesus for what he's done in our lives. This isn't the only place Jesus tells us something like this, though. Skip down to verse 12 of chapter 7 with me. You know it. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Why? For this is the law and the prophets. This is what we refer to as the golden rule. We grew up saying it in church. It's probably on a flannel graph. It was, you know, it was there. We knew it. We said it. We recited it, maybe from our salty Bible. Glad some of y'all got that. But notice how Jesus sums this up. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why? 
For this is the law and the prophets. So that law and prophets piece is one Jesus is he's using elsewhere in Scripture too, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Down in Matthew 22, he's gathered with the Pharisees and others and is asked, what is the great commandment of the law? And you know Jesus, he never misses an opportunity to go deeper than what people are expecting. He answers them and he says this. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They sum it up. You shall love God with your whole life, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is telling them, if you have a strong love for God, it will be evident in a life of loving others, both inside the walls of the church and in your community. As the band makes their way back up to the stage this morning, and we kind of close out our time, I want to call us to remember God's work of extravagant grace in our lives. You see, you and I, we are here this morning because someone loved us. Someone loved us enough to point us to Christ in a myriad of little influential ways. Someone loved us enough to look at our sins and our failures and say to us, hey, me too. I was there, but for the grace of God. And someone loved you enough to tell you about Jesus and how he can be the Lord of your life because he was the one who was tempted and tried in every way like us, yet he was without sin. And even though sin demanded God's judgment and justice, he provided a sacrificial lamb in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you do not believe in the name of Jesus, that is the good news that you need. That's good news that every person created in God's image, and that's every person, needs to hear and they need to believe. But before we start singing this morning, we're going to do a little bit of heart work ourselves. I was talking to Ryan, and Ryan, if you're watching this, this is, when you're, when you're back next week, they can, they can give you their, their glances. This is from me. He said, how do you want to end this? See, it's easy to read this text. It's easy to hear this sermon and then go, oh, hey, it's over. Let's sing now. But if you're anything like me, as I've been prepping for this, as I've been studying for this, this has been so, so hard. Because <laughs> I know I believe it in my head and I know I believe it in my heart. But sometimes those things aren't in sync. And I may live with a, look what you made me do attitude. And so before we get up to sing, the band's gonna start, they're gonna play. But maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a few moments, you do some heart work. If the spirit has convicted you of any sort of self-righteousness, not just that list, but any others, let him deal with you. Let him work on you. The good news of the gospel is that we will have eternity to praise him for what he's done. Brothers and sisters, let us not miss a moment to let him work on us now. So I'm gonna pray for us. 
and Krista and the band, they're gonna lead. Feel no obligation or no pressure to just stand, okay? Maybe, maybe you don't have any, anything that you feel like Lord's working on. That's okay. Like, you can stand and sing. But if you do, don't, don't just go through the motions of getting up just to sing. Let him work on you. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are gracious. And you are life to us. we fail so often. We sin, we fall short, and yet there are new mercies every single day. Please, God, wreck our hearts. Convict us and put to death the things that have to die so that we can be fully alive and living for you. I ask this in the name of Jesus.